Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, I'm Anoush. Oh, and I'm Armando. And in this third special episode of the New Statesman podcast, we'll be joined by the Devon political campaigner Claire Wright and actor and director Chris Addison to discuss campaigning in British politics, the party system and where influence really lies. Amanda, we wanted to talk about this because we were wondering how you can actually influence politics at a local or at a national level without sort of buying into the party machine. What do you think? It's picking up on this trend I've noticed a lot about maybe people are just giving up on Westminster, more independent standing, smaller parties standing. Obviously, the Greens are now, you know, a major force. Talk about progressive alliances between parties, which, you know, don't make any sense unless you tackle also how the voting system. More and more people actually moving away from looking at Westminster as, as a centre of power and, and at, at local areas. You've got the rise of King of the North, Andy Burnham, as you've dubbed him on a New Statesman cover, who is an advert for saying, look, you can actually have power and influence outside Westminster. And also has the traditional method of campaigning and electing MPs. Does that now seem out of date or what is a way of refreshing it so that we can get more and more people engaging with politics. To help us get to the bottom of this and even imagine how things could be different, we've invited a couple of special guests. Claire Wright spent many years as a councillor in East Devon and in the 2015, 2017 and 2019 general elections, she stood as an independent candidate for the constituency and chipped away further at the Conservative majority each time and coming second each time, which is very rare for an independent candidate. Welcome, Claire. Thank you very much. And you might know Chris Addison from his role playing political advisor, Ollie Reader, in our comedy show, The Thick of It, among many other things. Of course, he's a writer, director, producer of film and TV, including the hit US political show Veep, which we're also mutually involved. We were mutually. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Well, we'll see. Claire, in the most recent general election where you stood, you were running against a Tory candidate who was a spat, weren't you? Yes, he was. He was a um, a former special advisor to Dominic Raab. So he had no previous experience of representing people at all. Well, that's why I wanted to come and visit you, which I, I did. And I covered that, that race during our 2019 election coverage because I thought it was the perfect encapsulation of what we're talking about on the podcast today, which was the battle between someone like you, an independent candidate who's built a following locally campaigning on local issues versus someone who, as you say, has made a career for himself in the Westminster system 
who is used to exerting his influence on politics in a different way. You came second each time, but you still haven't won. What does that tell you about the prospects for people who want to be independent candidates like you and make a difference locally? Well, it's very hard, isn't it? In 2015, 2017, I I thought that I would probably do quite well, but I wasn't convinced I was going to win. In 2019, I was actually probably remembering it. I was completely convinced I was going to win. Um, and then there was this huge Tory swing on, on the night. You know, the rest is history. I've always said to people who've asked me this, and I think there are probably four key things that there has to be in place before an independent can even have a prospect of winning, really. And I think, first of all, is is the funds, because you can't, realistically fund a parliamentary campaign by yourself unless you're incredibly rich. So I think in 2019, we raised around £16,000, something like that. And we spent it all, we spent it right up to the limit that we were allowed to, to spend on our campaign, which brings me to another slight tangent in that, you know, obviously for an independent, you have a very strict limit. If you're a party candidate, you have an individual limit plus the party limit. So you have vastly more funds to spend under the Electoral Commission rules. That's the first thing. Second thing is you have to be not only, I would say, widely well known across the constituency, you also have to have some kind of track record so that people trust you. And then you also have to have got to the point, and I think I did achieve this through successive elections, which was in the 2015 election, there were so many people saying to me, how can you possibly ever win? Surely a vote for you is a waste of vote. And I think, as you know, by, by the time I got to 2019, people had stopped saying that. But what they were saying, and this was very much perpetuated by the other parties, was, what's the point of voting for you? And I managed to hopefully address most of those things. But I think in, in the end, people wanted to vote, such a cliche, to get Brexit done. And, and I think that <laughs> if there had been perhaps a stronger Labour leader and, and you know, or ifs, 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 <laughs> Then, then I perhaps would would have made it, but it didn't work on the night, and it didn't work the two previous occasions. So it's really hard. It's really hard to get elected, and you also have to have a huge group of people working for you. So I had hundreds of people leafleting for me across the constituency, dozens of people door knocking, and a really good, strong core campaign team and a good campaign manager. You have to be so organised and so politically astute when it comes to working with the core people who know how to run an election campaign and and potentially win one. And you have to have a lot of people working for you as well. So it's really hard. (laughs) It's hard. And in contrast to all that, you know, meanwhile, over in Westminster, the person you were standing against, Claire, former political advisor to Dominic Rabb, which is a horrible sentence. Yeah, apart from the former apart from bit. The former, yeah. bit. <laughs> but, but do you remember, Chris, when we were researching that role of the SPAD, how extraordinary it was that a lot of policy was being made up by people who were about 12. Yeah, people who, who had done, you know, PPE or the equivalent thereof. Um, we, of course, PPE is a different thing now, isn't it? But, uh, <laughs> we po- we had more people who had done PPE. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but people who had done politics, philosophy and, uh, and economics at, at uh, Oxford or similar and had gone into sort of think tanks or some form of political PR were the people who were making that kind of policy. And ministers and their sort of senior advisors are so busy that actually it, all of that stuff is going to roll downhill to the to the people who have got a bit of time or at least no life or uh, the energy of an early 20 something and that's who ends up forming the papers that 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 then go on to become policy and as Claire's find out they then become MPs well then that's the other thing is that each of those people 
they're not thinking in terms of what's the best policy at this point. Almost all of those people have their own political ambitions. And the SPAD role is a springboard, as far as they're concerned, into something else, that, so that hopefully, eventually, they get parachuted into a constituency. And sometimes it's about coming up with a policy that, as you say, is just there as a kind of, look what I've done, look what I've come up with. Because I'm involved at the moment with the, you know, the government is putting a question mark over public service broadcasting, maybe privatising Channel 4. What I'm hearing is that Boris Johnson himself is not the least bit interested in it, but this is Oliver Dowden wanting to show that he can do something so he can earn some brownie points. I mean, what he could do is save the arts. That would be the the ideal thing for him to do in his position. (laughs) But he seems to have stepped back from that and gone through attacking the arts instead, which is an interesting pivot. But Claire, who would you say your voters were if you had any sense of, if you weren't standing, who do you think they would have been voting? You know, was it it a real coalition of, of different party allegiances? East Devon has been a Conservative constituency since, I think, since records began. It's never been anything else. Even if the Labour Party and the Lib Dems and the Green candidate and the other independent candidate had stood down and all those votes came to me, I still wouldn't have won. I, I would probably, I think I would have missed it out, missed, missed by a sliver. So in, in 2019, that wouldn't have worked. In 2017, I think if the same scenario had happened and those votes had come to me, obviously it's theoretical, then I would have won by a sliver. But obviously that's all conjecture, really. So that's the interesting thing, isn't it? Because we always have this talk of a progressive alliance every time election time comes around. And you're saying, you know, that may not have helped you in 2019. It may have helped slightly more in 2017. I think the only person who stood as an independent candidate, you know, in recent political history, Martin Bell in Tatton in 1997, he only managed to win because the Labour and Liberal Democrat campaign stood aside for him during that that campaign, which, you know, brings us on to the question of whether or not it really is worth making these local alliances to try and oust, you know, whichever governing party. I mean, to oust. All the parties, or, or you will find people within all the parties saying this this is the way forward, especially if you want to avoid, you know, Britain having, or, or England having a conservative government for the next 20 or 30 years. You will find people within each party saying that, but you won't actually find the parties themselves saying it, which is a problem. Labour, you know, I think has in its constitution a clause saying that it cannot make any kind of electoral pact with any other party. At the moment, it seems it only can happen locally rather than nationally. Yeah, and of course, when you speak to people in the parties that could potentially be making progressive alliances like the Lib Dems and the Greens, they'll always tell you that their local activists there's a great deal of resentment among them if they're asked to, you know, just just put a lid on it for a bit or campaign for the other candidate or stand aside for Labour. Because when you're running, particularly if you're running for the Green Party or you've been campaigning for them for a long time in a certain place and you're loyal, you're not doing it for career reasons, really, are you? You're doing it for the love of the party. And so it really is goes against your your instinct as an activist but to that's actually an issue in support itself, someone isn't it? else. Because it, it, for the, if you're doing something for the love of the party as opposed to for the things you believe in, the the specific, the specific and individual things that you believe in, that is, that's problematic. And in terms of electing people who are independent, it's all to do with the same thing, which is removing that aspect of people's political identity, the, the colour that they associate with, and moving them towards the things that they actually care about. That's what you have to, what you have to do. And that's what, that's how you have to sort of engage with those activists, I think. Yeah. And in terms of specifically ousting the Tories, I think it's a really, the Progressive Alliance question is a really difficult one because 
the majority of Lib Dem target seats in 2019 were Tory seats. You know, the Greens won almost as many council seats off Conservatives as they did Labour in the most recent local elections. So you can't guarantee that this block of voters is necessarily going to vote Labour or vote whichever candidate has been stood aside for. And, and you know, it goes back to what Claire was saying about not being sure what her coalition of voters were. You know, sometimes if voters want to register a protest, it could be Lib Dems won one election, UKIP the next. You know, you can't really label what people are no, absolutely people are more fluid that that way but and also i think you know people are more engaged politically than they have been for a while but i think it's with single political issues yeah. you know whether it's climate change or ecology or you know the countryside alliance from 10 or 15 years ago yes. or brexit you know they, they identify i think with specific issues and I just wonder, therefore, I mean, you, ha- you haven't made up your mind, Claire, about the next election, but whether, are you in the process of thinking, is it worth taking part in an election to become an MP at the UK Parliament? Or is it far better to try and achieve some power within the local area? Oh, well, I feel like I've taken being on councils as far as I can. I've been in local politics for 12 years before I stood down on the 6th of May. I think going back to what you were just saying around trying to persuade local activists to vote for a progressive alliance, sort of jointly supported candidate. Certainly, I mean, I can imagine that could be quite difficult when you're looking at, you know, Green versus, you know, Lib Dem versus Labour. What I have found is that the Lib Dems and the Greens are more flexible in terms of wanting to transfer their vote to someone who they think shares most of their values, who can also win. Labour voters are a little bit more hard to convince, but they were convinced. But what I did find in all three elections is that I was bombarded, particularly in 2019, by people saying, have you done a pact with the Labour Party? Have you done a pact? You know, Labour, you know, these are members of parties saying, can you please do a pact so that you can ask them to stand down? And, And that would always put me in effect because I knew I had no purchase to ask any other candidate to stand down because I was an independent working on my own. And if I was a party member, I could say, okay, well, we'll stand down for you here and we'll stand here and perhaps you could stand down for me. I couldn't do that. So I always used to bat it back to them and say, if you want your candidate to stand down, please contact them. And, And I know that they were bombarded, the Lib Dems, the Greens, and Labour candidate were bombarded with people from their own parties asking them to stand out. So I think that's not necessarily so much the challenge. What I often see party members saying that people want a choice. Well, yes, but they if their primary goal is to overturn the existing MP's outcome, the existing MP, then then and the and the, the candidate who's the next likely to win is shares most of their values, that a lot of people will switch their vote. My fear, and I'm sure it's anyone who's, you know, on the left of politics is fear, is that we're going to continue to get conservative governments who see off every competition by by sort of playing dirty tricks. So Nigel Farage was seen off in UKIP, Nigel Farage was seen off with the Brexit party and totally obliterated. So now the Conservatives, once again, have no competition, whereas the left constantly are fighting each other. I mean, that's my fear, is that I, I actually, you know, is Boris Johnson actually relishing this, this change, people going local? Because it takes the focus away from Westminster. And, and actually, that is where the real power is, you know, despite all the, you know, on the ground active campaigning, we've found over the last 18 months that national politicians, our leaders, 
do have, you know, are in charge of life and death, really. They make life and death decisions. And that is where the power... Do you remember the very first episode of The Thick of It? We, you were in the back of a car. Yes, and I making got you to, policies. I got you to improvise policies. Yes. And do you, <laughs> you came up with National Spare Room Database. I did, yeah. And I thought that was brilliant. But it became the bedroom tax about yeah. four or five years later. Almost everything we came up in the back of that car has subsequently <laughs> been policy. Which just shows you the power that these people have. You know, if you could get close to the minister and the minister is close <laughs> to the treasury, yeah. it, there's a sort of, you know, back of fag packet. Not that people have backs of fag packets now because they're covered in pictures of lungs. But uh, <laughs> in the old days when there, were, when there was enough room for you to write ideas down on, that was a worry then when we were making it. But I think it must be even more so now because if there is this lack of attention people talk about even the opposition not really being focused enough on challenging the government there must be a sense within Westminster that they're free to do wherever they like. I don't think there is that focus on localism at the moment I just don't. I I think the last few years we've been through we've concentrated on Westminster far more than we have for a very long time, actually, you know, the the the, the proroguing of Parliament, the various different issues with Brexit, the number of times that they brought the same bill, all of that stuff. We've talked about parliamentary process even in a way that we that we never have. Everything up until the twenty nineteen election was focused on on Parliament from the referendum onwards, and and that hasn't happened for for a long time. So in many ways. The, the the real issue is should we be more concentrating on localism and but what that is i think is it's not about who has power at the local level i think that's that is one important question but the most important question in terms of how the parties particularly the the progressive parties of the left focus their attentions on the local areas for me is what are you doing for the grassroots there even if you're not in power you should be the people that people that the, the constituents in your area think of as are they helping on a practical level they're helping I don't know, fix a gutter or, or sort out sort out a, a children's centre. You, you do have these fabulous MPs. Jess Phillips is so sort of clued into her local area. There's so much of, of, of her discourse, of her public discourse, is about her, her area and what she's specifically doing for those people, which is great. That's how any MP should be. But it feels to me like if, if Labour want to win the red wall back, say, then what you should be doing is, whilst you're not in power in those places, is rooting yourselves in those communities and do, practically doing good there. You're listening to a special bonus episode of the New Statesman podcast with Armando Iannucci. When we come back, we'll talk about how austerity is impacting local politics and how we get a better standard of MPs into Westminster. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Maybe in Westminster, there isn't this concentration on localism, but what's been interesting in local elections, more independent standing, a whole Tory council thrown out in Surrey, replaced by 
residents association yeah. candidates. But the government still has power to change the rules. So there is talk of changing local elections away from the PR system and back into first past the post, which will favour conservatives in certain areas. There is the boundary changes, which will favour conservatives in certain and and things like you know voter ID to abolish all this fraud that's been suddenly going on, <laughs> yeah. this fraudulent yeah. election that fraudulently got us a conservative government. Yeah. You know, which again is going to place limits on on certain communities and 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 their ability to vote hugely so but the core of the of so much of the problem is what is the appeal of those of the progressive parties to an electorate who who have rejected them consistently over the last 11 years it's interesting to see that the center westminster the tory government has has sort of hobbled councils over the past decade by sort of devolving blame for cuts onto them they have to make all the difficult decisions they have to close the children's center and what's been interesting is reporting in places that have been voting in by-elections recently you hear from voters you know they'll say oh well you know they sold off the the Labour Council sold off the police station yeah. now we have loads of crime and you think well <laughs> you know you don't say this to the voter but you think well they had to sell off the police station because <laughs> they don't have any money because um, George Osborne cut your yeah. funding yeah. so that is I think that's one of the the least reported but most important changes in the past decade of of politics because like you say, voters in the Red Wall are thinking, you know, this place used to be better a few years ago. It must be our local Labour leadership. But actually, lots of these councils haven't had very much choice in the decisions that they've had to make. So, Claire, why did you stand? Was it dissatisfaction with all the parties or was it something, was it dissatisfaction with something that was happening in your area? What Anish was just saying about austerity for the past decade was 100% right. I've been probably more angry about austerity and the NHS being squeezed and in environmental issues than, than anything else in my in my 12 years in politics. Devon County Council alone has had, you know, well over a 100 million slashed in, in a decade. And, and, you know, you can imagine what that's done to services. And whenever I go and talk to schools, when I used to go and talk to schools, I'd say to them, this is, you know, 17-year-old A-level politics students. And I'd say to them, believe it or not, there was a time when roads weren't potholed and they can't remember it, but you know, their teachers can. And, and I always say that, you know, potholes are the physical manifestation of local government funding cuts. And there are so, so many other cuts, but they're not necessarily seen by people every day because they're only affecting people who are the most vulnerable. And what happens with people who are the most vulnerable is that they tend not to have voices. And then you speak to somebody else who, you know, is on a nice salary or nice pension, thank you very much. And, and they don't, they just don't see it apart from potholes. So I was interested to see in Patley and Spen that one of the key things that voters kept bringing up was potholes. Who's responsible for potholes? Well, it's conservative conservative austerity. And I just think it's very convenient, isn't it? And, and Anusha is exactly right. It's it's this thing where, the, you know, the government has instigated all these cuts, but when the cuts happen, some of the conservative MPs and some of the conservative councillors will be campaigning, out campaigning, saying, well, this must get fixed. It's appalling. Why are the councils fixing it? Well, it's their government that's made the cuts and, and that drives me nuts I have to say. So then is the question that the, the, the main parties are they running their campaigns too much on a national one size fits all voice and actually they should be almost fragmenting their campaigns so that each local area has its own 
set of priorities within a national campaign. It's very difficult to balance them, isn't it? Because everything is reported everywhere. So you can't be at odds with the central message. The minute you say, okay, we're going to we're going to make this much more kind of local based. We're not going to run a candidate's party list or anything like that. It's all going to be, you sort it out over there. That's when the dingbats turn up, isn't it? That's when the people <laughs> with the really, so that, that halfway through the election, it, turn, it turns out, you know, they're 20,000 pounds in debt and they've, uh, and they've got three hookers in a shed. What do you do? You can completely understand why the parties want complete control. The longer life goes on, the more I understand Malcolm Tucker's point of view which is which is oh well which is because ultimately what he was trying to do was was make it all work properly <laughs> and and stop things from leaking out and and, and that's the yeah, problem that maybe, the parties have okay, when you start to go local how it's been interesting you know in labor's attempt to try and win back scotland they've devolved more almost the scottish labor party is almost like a separate right, party yeah. i just wonder whether you know is there any merit in labor say to you know andy burnham okay you can be head of the party in the north. You know, you can you can set the agenda. So it's not so much local down to a kind of local constituency level, right. but at least show that the party's running its campaigns are much more focused on a regional area, so that the electorate can see actually who the point of contact is. It might work, but it also still requires everybody to be singing from the same hymn mm. sheet, doesn't it? Yes. Ultimately, because as soon as Andy Burnham is at odds with Keir Starmer, there's your story. That's the, there's the, That division is the story, and it makes them less electable, and that's, that's the real problem. How do you persuade an incredibly diverse constituency of voters that you represent all of them? Although it is the, has been the Lib Dems kind of game plan for a while isn't it in certain areas they'll be saying you know we're very much in favor of hs2 it's going to speed uh, work and commuters to the north whereas in other areas they say no we're against hs2 it's coming through this constituency we're opposed to it i mean they, they've they've <laughs> made it a kind of part of the a speciality of, of being able to to, to, to come up with alternative proposals depending on which and how's that working out well, that, <laughs> one <Yeah>. constituency <laughs> at a time yeah, is the yeah. answer yeah. Yeah. Well, that, yeah that brings us on nicely to the last question that I wanted to discuss with you all which is what is the point of a local MP because if they are ultimately campaigning on this one-size-fits-all message and by the time they get to Westminster they then vote with the party whip on all of these policies when they've promised, you know, voters in a university city constituency will build more social housing but voters in, you know, a commuter belt somewhere in the beautiful countryside we won't build any more housing. What, what You know, what is the point of them if they if they vote in blocks like this? I, I know that Caroline Lucas, the only Green MP, often says one of the best things is that she doesn't have to vote with a whip and actually one of the fears of the, of the Green party with the green surges oh if we get another mp we're we going to have division in parliament now well, that's it, isn't it? It's, it sort of works locally if you want a small party but but as chris is pointing out once you want to go big compromises start having to be made don't they claire i'm just wondering whether you think um, mps should be paid more because because i do in that you pointed out you need money you need money to be able to run an election and at the moment we're asking other people who are wealthy or who have funding from some other organization to stand. Whereas if people, you know, if a teacher decided actually after, you know, 25 solid years of teaching experience, I think I've got something to give back by going into parliament, they should be, she should feel enabled to, to stand. Well, I, I'm a bit skeptical about the whole MP should be paid more thing. I think MPs, you know, they're probably in the what one top 1%, 2% of earners. 
And I think that, you know, once you become an MP, you are well paid. And actually, I don't think because I keep hearing people say, oh, we need the best colour MPs, we need to pay the most. I think that's a little bit of a red herring because I actually think that it's not necessarily about attracting people from the highest earnings. It's about attracting the right kind of person with the right kind of Well, I suppose it sounds a little bit cheesy, but I suppose sort of the right heart. So, you know, the the person who is going to put their constituents first. Okay, that might sound naive because we have a party system where, as Chris was just outlining, it's all about the career ladder and voting with the whip and everything else. But I suppose I still, although I think that politics at the moment and this government is appalling, I still have that hope that one day the pendulum will start to swing in the other direction and, and MPs will be more about community representation and will be more inclined to fight for their communities on things that the whip isn't necessarily going to applaud. First of all, I would say that, you know, I wasn't funded by an organisation, I was crowdfunded. So I had donate, you know, hundreds of donations, like £10 to £50. And I think if you get a candidate that people believe in, which is goes back to a candidate that people know and people trust, then people will crowdfund you because they want to see a change and they want to see something inspirational. I think the democracy has gone very wrong in this country and this government has shown that up to be the case, I think, more than any other, certainly that I can remember. And and something does need to change. And I and I do hope that at some point in the not too distant future, people will wake up and they will see this government for what it truly is. And they will actually ask more of their politicians and expect the truth. Claire's optimistic there. How do you feel, Chris? I see no signs of anybody waking up i just don't see like what do you have to do well i think that's a good note to end on chris addison and claire wright thanks so much for joining us for this discussion thanks for having us my pleasure So, Armando, what struck you about the discussion that we've just had? Well, mixture of optimism and pessimism. I'm kind of side with Chris's pessimism, only in that, you know, it would be great to have more independently minded MPs, whether that's officially as an independent or from a smaller party or independently minded within the larger parties. But the only way that's going to happen is if the voting system changes and more people feel that they're in with a chance and the odds aren't stacked against them. But the only way the voting system is going to change is if a party is in power that agrees to change the voting system. And that won't happen until several parties agree to form some kind of electoral alliance, which I think is still a long way off. So that's where I'm pessimistic. I did think that, you know, talking about funding and funding MPs and so on, I think Claire's point that actually crowdfunding is crowdsourcing is 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 an interesting area. And of course, that's how Obama, you know, ran his campaign and various others. Unfortunately, it's also how Donald Trump ran his. But, um, you know, swings and roundabouts. Yeah, I think you're right. There is, there is a little sort of glimmer of optimism in, in what Claire was saying about how, you know, how she managed to run a, a relatively successful campaign. And it will only take, you know, an upset like her winning in, in an election at some point for people to realise that they can actually do it if they if they try obviously she fell short last time but she she's been chipping away at that majority each time which yeah. which is quite interesting and also chris's point i thought was a really good one of even if you're not in power locally you don't hide mm. you know you you engage locally although you know we we in the end we agreed to disagree on whether national campaigns can be lo- run locally i think there might be an element of allowing you know sizable chunks of the country to run their campaign ever so slightly different from the way 
London wants it to be run. So that's it for now. Stephen will be here for the last of these bonus episodes. What will you be talking about then? Well, on the next episode, Alva and I will speak with Anna Subri and Paul Mason about the issue of consensus. And why is the standard of public debate so poor? And how can we disagree with each other in a much more civilised manner? Looking forward to it. Until then, bye. Bye Bye-bye. You've been listening to a bonus episode of the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and our special guest host, Armando Yanucci. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and don't forget to subscribe. You can watch video from this podcast on the New Statesman's YouTube channel and on the New Statesman website. This episode was produced by Adrian Bradley and our executive producer is Chris Stone. The music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.